0: Peace Women Across the Globe, a podcast about women's contribution to peace all over the world.
1: Well, my name is Mandy Carter. I live in Durham, North Carolina, United States of America, born November 2nd, 1948, so I'm going to turn 72 this year. African American out lesbian proudly from the south for people who understand about the southern part of the state um and humbled and honored to have been picked and selected to be one of the American women for the 1000 women for the peace prize in 2005 it's hard to believe that was what 15 years ago yeah Right now, uh, in terms of where we are politically and in terms of the year of 2020, we have a critical, prominent United States America election coming up for the presidency, but also for a lot of the state, local, whatever. And I right now have the title of Voter Engagement Strategist for two organizations, Equality North Carolina. And Southerners on New Ground, which I am proud to say I'm one of the six co-founders of, which now is in its 28th year. And so my work between now and uh, November 3rd is to do this organizing around our U.S. presidential election. So this is the latest Washington Post poll among black Democratic voters. And Joe Biden leads the charge by more than two to one. Why do you think that Joe Biden is so appealing to black voters?
0: To be simple, to be honest.
1: You know, the best way I would describe it is that all of who I am is at stake. So being a woman is at stake. Being African-American is at stake. Being a lesbian is at stake. Being an elder is at stake. And so when you look at the policies that the, that the uh, Trump administration has, has issued over these past three and a half years, a lot of those federally, but also on a state level here in North Carolina, has really been a large pushback of a lot of the rights that we had to gain. I'll give you probably the most important consequential example. In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court on June issued an amazing historic win for Edie Windsor, who was a lesbian, who had a lesbian who passed away, who who challenged the Defense of Marriage Act, and she won. I pledge allegiance you can't stop us. to the flag of the United States of America is abomination. with liberty and justice for all. When she won that court decision, that meant any any couple, same gender couple, could legally get married in this in this entire country. It would be similar to what happened in with the uh, what was the decision in um, 1967 with. Um, Leving versus the State of Virginia when the U.S. Supreme Court legalized interracial marriage. But that same Supreme Court all but gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And for those of us who are black and gay, what do we do with the decision when you have an Edie Windsor marriage equality, not gay marriage, but marriage equality, get get a historic win, and at the same time all but gutted part of who I am and the struggle of who we were? And I find ourselves oftentimes in that situation federally, state, and local. When these lands were first settled, let's have that conversation. When these lands were first settled, and you think about who was already here indigenous to these lands, right, people of color essentially, when White men set up the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Who was not on that list in terms of being able to vote, run for office? Women. So from day one, when these lands were settled, and you think about what that grounding is, that really meant right, right from the get, we were never meant to be. So we count that. The next set of folks who came on ships from Africa in terms of slavery came here literally as property. Property. And you saw the struggle we had to do around that. And when we finally get to the point of where we weren't even perceived to be human beings and citizens, we are told the exact same thing they said to women. You cannot vote. You cannot run for office. In fact, we couldn't even get legally married. We had to do the African tradition of jumping the broom. So if you look at those two things in terms of women and people of color, and by default, who does that leave? White men.
0: We know that too many young men in our community continue to make bad choices. And I have to say, growing up, I made quite a few myself. Sometimes I wrote off my own failings as just as another example of the
1: world trying to keep a black man down. This is the first time in, in, in U.S. history when we've had a first-ever African-American president serve from, for an eight-year term. And so the uniqueness of having our first ever African American president, a Democrat who really got it and understood about economic justice, racial justice, gender justice, um, to have that followed by Donald Trump, and since then there has been this uh, a a huge effort by women, diverse people, trying to figure out how, come November third, twenty twenty, that we make sure that not he but another Democrat gets elected.
0: What would you do if no one cared for you? Imagine, if you're honest about who you are, you could be killed. That's always been the reality for many LGBT folks since the birth of America. Many people lived in secret, fearful that someone Being would discover
1: them. Being born in 19th, November 2nd, 1948, so me and my brother and Ronnie were put in uh, an orphanage. It was called... Albany Children's Home. It's still there. It's now called Russell Sage College. The home got sold. And when the home got sold, the three of us, few, a very handful of, of children of color, most of these places are predominantly white. Uh, and so they found a black farm family to take us in as foster children. And I was there from 8 to 12 in Chatham Center, New York, upstate New York. I would say to you personally, it was not a good experience for me. Um, I knew our father because our father would come visit us when we were young at the Albany Children's Home. Our mother came once with a baby in her arms, looked at me, Ronnie, and Dolores, and we said, Are you taking us home with you? She said, No. Left with the baby and left them, and that was the last time we saw our mother. Like, whatever that was, I don't know. But to make a long story short, after the home was sold, Christoph, the three of us were sent to the, to the, to the, to the our, a black farm family in Chatham Center, New York. For me personally, it was a mixture of good and bad because it was interesting to be finding in a home with a, a with a foster mother and a foster father. We still had all of us together. But at age 12, I had been sent to another another orphan is called the Schenectady's Children's Home not far away. Because of that, I lost track with my brother Ronnie at the age of 12 and 13. So more importantly, getting sent to another orphanage, but this was in key and important. The Schenectady's Children's Home once again had very few kids of color, but what was key, they mainstreamed this into the public high school of Schenectady, New York, went to Mount Pleasant High School. And this is in 1962, 63, 64, 65. Historically, let's talk about where the United States was. Somewhere
0: around this time now, another shot, the 6th of August, strikes James Bay down by the underpass. The car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front.
1: John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And all of us sitting in those classrooms had to be told, run home quick, the president's been shot. And then, of course, we would see footage after footage of that, that picture of him being shot. And, 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 and for to have that trauma, and I can remember thinking, well, you can't kill the president not realizing it was just a whatever. But that trauma, not only for the United States, but for those of us living on that track, I'll never forget that day as long as I live. So that was November 22nd, 1963. The life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a... And as a woman, as a baby of color going home, whatever, it didn't sink on me much until... April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight. Does that date ring a bell? King was assassinated in Memphis, Texas.
0: We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal.
1: When you turn eighteen, you uh, what's the word? You uh, age out of the system. All right. I aged out. I graduated Mount Pleasant High School in nineteen sixty-six. And here's the game-changer part that's most relevant, I think, to this conversation. Because we were in the public school system, our social studies teacher bought in someone from the American Friends Service Committee. It was a young white staffer who came into our social studies class, and what he said, the three things he said is why I'm having a conversation with you right now. So he said, first of all, the Quakers believe in the fundamental equality and justice for all, kind of grounding in that, right? Equality and justice for all, just grounded in that principle. Then he talked about this notion of the power of one, that we all have a moral compass and each and every one has, has a potential to impact change if we so choose to act on it. When he said that, I didn't quite get it, but think about that, the power of one, we And each and all right, but was the third thing he said? We have a Quaker high school work camp in the Pocono Mountains. Who would like to go? I raised my hand and I went. That was the game-changing moment, because we just spent like two weeks in this camp up in the Pocono Mountains. But it was who they brought in that impacted my life in terms of my lifelong commitment to nonviolence, activism, passivism, and being okay, being gay or lesbian. They brought a white folk singing couple in, Guy and Candy Carowin, from the Highlander Center. And as a young white folk singing couple, they called themselves cultural workers. And this is the time of Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Judy Collins, that kind of 60s folk thing, but also Vietnam War. But they said, what we want to do and the way we can contribute to the civil rights movement, we are going to take a tape recorder. And we're gonna go down south and we're gonna record all the freedom songs and the freedom meetings happening in those black churches. That is all now at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, DC.
0: i stepped in the middle of seven I've been out in front
1: of Candy Caron Woods, I was 17 when I met Candy and bring it up to speed. Candy is still at the, at the Highlander Center. Guy has passed. And she and I are now in this thing called the National Council of Elders at 71. So for me to have met Candy at 17 and we're both in the National Council of Elders, it's extraordinary. The ch- this is a- another quick sto- side story. I really had wanted to be a doctor, and I was going to Mount Pleasant High School to take pre-med courses. And ironically, um, you had to take a foreign language in order to get your, you know, to get on the course of pre-med. I took Spanish, and I flunked. And I remember thinking, "Well, Spanish, who needs that? No idea the importance of it." But more importantly, I don't know how it works in your system, but in the United States, if you go for a pre-med course and you and you do not – you, if you flunk one class, you can't automatically go into a four-year – you cannot go into a four-year institution. And mine was going into the State University of New York. I was devastated because, remember, at 18, I had to make a decision. I couldn't live at the home anymore. But ironically, the home had so supported me, they said – Even though you didn't get into a four-year school, we will pay for your entire education if you want to go ahead and become a doctor, but you have to commit. But it was too late because I had already done that Quaker work camp in the Pocono Mountains already. So in a weird way, flunking flunking that Spanish class at the time seemed like, oh, my gosh, in a weird way, that was probably the best thing that could have happened, and I will be forever indebted to my Spanish teacher. (laughs) So after after I had decided not to take the wonderful opportunity from the Schenectady Children's Home, um, I decided I was going to maybe just think about moving to New York City, trying to get a job there, and I also had heard of an organization called the War Resisters League. The War Resisters League, founded in 1923 by three women, believing. And this is the statement of purpose, believing all wars to be a crime against humanity, international or civil. I will strive nonviolently to end all wars. Two of the key people within the War Resisters League were gay. Bayard Rustin, black man, who actually was the the architect of the famous I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March on Washington. And Igor Rodenko, another member of the War Resisters League. So to know that you're a part of a national organization started by three women in which they embrace, not turn away from, and understand from the very beginning, ooh, a gay rights is a human rights too, but also protesting that war in Vietnam, that meant that I kind of embodied all that. And with no parents, I didn't have to worry about coming out. I mean, I think a lot of my friends, if they're of color or not, one of the most difficult decisions is what do you do about coming out to your parents? and how they may or may not receive that, or friends. I didn't have that issue. I thought, well, that's a good one. (laughs) So I had $80 in my pocket. I took a Greyhound bus down to New York City the summer of 1967, and I ran out of money. And I ended up, and this is this is like the summer of love. This was like hippies and all that. And I ended up running out of money and I ended up sleeping in Central Park. And also, and it was warm, you know, summer in the city. And then I ended up saying, Well, maybe I should go down to Washington Square Park. As I'm walking down West Village, and I come by, and there's a big window with a store window, and it says League for Spiritual Discovery. Free lunch. League for Spiritual Discovery, free lunch. I go in and I get a lunch. To make a long story short, I end up being able to work there. What what does the League for Spiritual Discovery spell? L-S-D. You know who ran that? Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary. I could not believe it. And I got a job there, no money, but in exchange for a place to stay. If I would answer that phone... Between the hours of 8 at night and 8 in the morning, if anyone was on a bad trip, I would answer the phone to tell them how to come down from acid, which would be niacin and vitamin B. That was the best summer of my life, and I was in the village. Now, when the summer was over, and everyone was hitching hitching out to where? San Francisco. Well, it turned out at the end of the summer, I got two friends of mine, and I have a quick story about how all this is relevant, to hitchhike out to San Francisco. Everyone was doing it. It was just what you did. And we stuck our thumb out to hitchhike to go to San Francisco. Have you ever been to New York City? Well, the three of us took the Holland Tunnel, and the minute you take the Holland Tunnel, it drops you off in New Jersey at a truck stop. And this is my first lesson of The Power of One and why all this comes together. We walk into this truck stop, and it's a white gentleman behind the counter. And he says to the three, he looks at me, Mandy. He looks at my friend Toshi, who's a Japanese man, and my 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 white friend, Natalia. He literally says to us, I'll serve her. We don't serve no colored people in here. This is a summer of 1967. And we said, you're kidding, right? He said, no, you see any colored people in here except the black gentleman behind doing those damn dishes behind the counter. We could not believe it for that to be... Literally, New York City, the most diverse place in the world. Less than a Holland tunnel drive away, New Jersey. And that's the first reception we got hitchhiking across the country. And that was the truck stop in New Jersey. Fast forward, we're now in Chicago. You might know where I'm going with this. We get to Chicago, the black section of Cargill, to get some barbecue. We walk into a black establishment. There's a black gentleman behind the counter, looks at me. Looks at Toshi, looks at Natalya, and says, I'll serve you too. We don't serve no white people in here. That was one of the most defining moments of my life. We don't serve no white people in here. That's exactly what we heard down in New Jersey.
0: I want to make it very clear that I'm going to continue with all of my might, with all of my energy, and with all of my action to oppose that abominable, evil, unjust war in Vietnam.
1: I learned something in there. I mean, what was that, John? What did you say? Well, I mean, you go into jail as a a pacifist, you come out a stronger pacifist. Martin Luther King Jr., April fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. That that speech he gave at Riverside was that had to have been historically looking back on it. Had he not given that speech, as kind of the face and voice of the civil rights movement, but the first person to question the morality of that war. He got huge pushback, Christoph. You had a civil rights movement said, Dr. King, you cannot talk about that. You can't go there that. Now, I have to be respectful because a lot of people have served in Vietnam. But he had a fundamental question, which I thought was really good. He said, if you had to fight for the right to sit at a lunch counter, to get on a bus, to get a home as a, as black men, And in the name of democracy, you want to send them 8,000 miles away and kill or be killed with basically other people of color, and they don't have it back home, then we have to question, what is that all about? Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh. Well, a lot of us went to jail to oppose that war in Vietnam in 67 because one of the things we had in California is that you had, uh, it's called the Oakland Induction Center. Anyone going I don't know how it works in your countries and other countries, but anyone who was going to be going to Vietnam, if they lived on the West Coast where I was in California, had to go through this thing called the Oakland Induction Center in Alameda County in, uh, in uh, California, not far from Berkeley, California. I purposely got arrested. And before I'll be a slave
0: I'll A be lot of us committed
1: nonviolent civil disobedience grief. with the War Resisters League and the and Institute Go for the Study of Nonviolence with Joan Baez and her mother and a lot of other people. And we spent purposely did jail no bail, spent ten days in the Santa Rita County jail. And guess who came to visit Joan Baez on one of those visits? Dr. King. And it just, there's a clip in a film that's being, that's being put together now called Boys Who Said No, but that clip of Dr. King coming to Santa Rita to have a conversation with Joan Baez, who was sitting in that jail, in the jail, it was 99% black women in that jail, which tells you a lot about the system in this country. And when I was the only black person arrested, out of all the women arrested, one black woman came up and said, Well, what? Are you, why are you here? What are you doing? And I said, I'm here because we're resisting the war in Vietnam. And here, listen to her response Oh my gosh, that is my husband, my brother, my cousin, my friend. Because when they go before the judge, the judge says to those black men, You have two choices jail or NAM. Jail or NAM. And think about the, just think about what that meant. For a whole generation. So that notion of the civil rights movement, the peace movement, and, and, and in a weird way LGBTQ all came together, you know what I mean? So it was unique. And it's not just me, but, but when you think about who sat in those jails, and this happened all across the country.
0: what's been achieved in regards to lgbtq rights today goes back decades to one event in particular 50 years ago in new york city in the early hours of june 28th 1969 the stonewall riots in 1969 it was illegal to be gay in new york state and every other state except illinois the stonewall riots kicked off a revolution that had implications over time across the u.s in canada
1: that whole movement about coming out or not coming out, person of color or not, a lot of also was geographical. It's one thing about coming out in the South. It's another thing about, and also why did everyone move to San Francisco or New York and Atlanta? Because they knew if they had to physically get away from where they might be either killed or, or just, you know, like, um, what's the word, um, uh, not loved or whatever, people would literally have to move if you could afford to or if you had the whereabouts. So those are important things. So when I say I felt okay about coming out and other people like me, but in a weird way, that's a whole movement of a lot of us in foster homes and orphanages where we actually had the ability to. And in a weird way, I'll say this is kind of important. If any one of us is ever in a position to come out as LGBTQ, And we have no reason to be concerned and nothing to lose by it. It's critical because we end up becoming, in an interesting kind of way, the face for those who cannot, the voice who cannot, for people who cannot be heard. So that power of one almost comes into, in a weird way, not just Mandy Carter as me personally, but as someone who represents that. But we went one step further, as did a lot of other organizations. Not only did we say we'll come out as Mandy and some other individuals and some other individuals, we said, why don't we, what happens if we form an organization? Which then was the basis of the National Black Lesbian and Gay Leadership Forum, which then became now the National Black Justice Coalition. So you see what I'm saying about that journey.
0: The history of gays and lesbians in America has been largely hidden, love expressed in secret, lives too often lived in the shadows. For generations to be gay meant being forsaken by family, fired by employers, even risking arrest or forced hospitalization. Gay life and gay love. And here's the other one it's not just about
1: me. When you think about the United States and what those initials spell, it spells us. This is one of the most self centered, in my opinion, it's all about me which is why I say I always end up joining something as a co-founder, not the lone director, not the lone executive director. In fact, I would say one of the wonderful things of a group called Southerners on the Ground, which six of us helped co-found it, that model is being replicated now. And co-founder could be two, three, four, five, and get away from
0: I'm the only person, I'm, Uh, you know, no. Frank Hemeny, who had been fired from his government job because he was gay, along with fellow activist Jack Nichols, picketed the White House in the nation's first major public gay protest. But the obstacles ahead were clear. We discovered that Americans consider homosexuality more harmful to society than adultery, abortion, or prostitution.
1: Sometimes you experiment. Like, I can tell you what our founding principles were when we started song in 1993. And here's, here's the mission. I remember it very well.
0: Some stigma slowly waned. In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association...
1: So our original mission statement was this. Building transformative movements across the South that would connect race, class, culture, gender, sexual orientation. They are the ones in, in 1993. Fast forward to 2020, we've added gender identity language justice and and we kept on expanding not going the other way and kind of talked about the notion of what we perceived to be the south but also no longer just in english and now you know so we have so in a weird way the 28 years meant that not only do we keep on hanging on to the original thing we had thought of if anything we kept on expanding and kind of what's the word um adding and adding and adding and uh, with the exception of Joan P. Garner, who, who, who sadly passed of cancer, all of the co-founders are still around and all are still actively engaged with another whole wonderful new generation of young folk, not even born in 1993. So this is the beauty of how you keep on having it, keep on um, creating it and passing it on.
0: Number four, women played prominent roles women dedicated to the goals often look beyond obstacles and perform many of the basic tasks necessary for the operation of the movement we
1: started song in 1993 we started the national black justice coalition in 2003 what's with these threes i don't know <laughs> so we started we started it and essentially it was once again intentional of having a, a, of kind of a diverse black everything from teens all the way up to elders. Uh, but when we started it, we intentionally did not have the word LGBT in it. Because for the first time, we decided, what if we were to approach, and here this is a little history, what if we were to approach um, the national, the uh, NAACP and the Urban League and the National Council of Negro Women are traditional civil rights organizations and said, because this is really about more than just black civil rights, this is around civil rights, around gender, orientation, whatever it might be. And lo and behold, we got a positive response. That because I remember when we're thinking about Black Lives Matter, of course that would all have to do with with, with the, the horrific murder, and there was a movement around it. I, I think a lot, of, and it, what, what I, I guess what I was really struck by with Black Lives Matter, but a lot of that's women-led. Three of the co-founders are women, and I'm thinking about that, and also generationally, I think that was a moment, and I always wonder. How is it that the same thing can happen over and over and over again? How many people have been murdered, killed, whatever, but for some reason this one thing, for some reason, somehow just seems to capture? 2013, George Zimmerman, which was Trayvon Martin's murderer, was acquitted. And myself and a lot of other black folks went You know, on people, I was thinking about degrees. Trayvon Martin down in Florida. That wasn't the first time that it happened. It had been happening times and times again. But for some reason, why that time? And even same thing with women. And then with the Me Too, mo- and with the Me Too movement. And, and right now, by the way, women are the majority of the population in the state of North Carolina. And that's going to happen several other places, and it won't, it won't be long before women are the majority of this country. Like I told you, by 2050, if not sooner, majority uh, people of color. So people might want to start getting prepared for that reality, what all that brings to, brings to the picture. Despite racial tensions continuing into the 1990s, progress
0: has been measurable. The election of President Barack Obama in 2008 is seen by many to be a culmination of centuries of work in favor of racial equality. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not
1: have been served at a local restaurant can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. I am, as as, as Southerners on New Ground, now in our 28th year since our founding, I'm in in this interesting position of um, what we call a nonpartisan voter engagement. So I'm I'm the voter engagement strategist for Southerners on New Ground and Equality North Carolina. Equality North Carolina is like a state-run LGBTQ ally uh, organization that partners with all the other 49 states. So I think the words— the changing of hearts and minds, which is always kind of key to any social movement, um, and the changing of public policy, the importance of the power of the vote. You got one, use it, right? And I think by the time anyone who turns 18, by November 3rd, is statistic, will be majority, will be majority person of color and majority woman.
0: I see no changes. What's unique in the way that the task force does our work is that we we work side-by-side in local communities. We fight for progressive causes all across the board, including um, and emphasizing LGBT rights.
1: I mean, when I think about, in in fact, I would tell you there's some people, it doesn't matter what the name is, there's a D, a Democrat. You're either going to vote for a Democrat or you're going to vote for a Republican. And in this case, the R ain't going to happen. <laughs> That's not going to be possible. But also, I must say, I find it interesting, when I think about Joe, Joe Biden, the fact that he was the vice president to Barack Obama, and they had an eight-year, the fact that Barack Obama won the first four years and was challenged on the second four years and still won? I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I have to, and, and I have to say, and my tears came from the fact that everyone who gave their lives for that vote... And some lived to see it, some didn't. And I think, uh, in perspective, you almost have to think back and think about those who never lived to see it. And then you realize that seed that kept on being passed on.
0: When uh, Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Uh, another way of saying that is, uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me. Uh, Thirty-five years ago, there are very few African American men.
1: In and I want to go back to one more power one. There was this her- horrific murder of Emmett Till in August of 1955, and he was down south. Just as I mean, people could read this story, and he was down south and sent and sent down by a single mother from Chicago, Chicago, where Barack Obama is from, in 1955, he was down south. Just you know. Picking cotton like everyone else and being a part of whatever people did down in very rural Mississippi. And so the legend went that he apparently whistled at the woman behind the counter. And the woman told the husband. The husband got the cousin, went to where Emmett Till was staying at this house, dragged him out of that house, put him in the barn, beat him within an inch of his life, and then shot him, dumped him in a truck. Well, they found his body. And they called this mother. Power of one. The mother said, I want an open casket because I want to see what, I want to have an open casket because I want people to see what hate looks like. That one mother, power of one, that was one of the most incredible decisions she ever made. Thousands of people came by to see the body, uh, see, the fun- see the body and the casket. That casket is now at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., And I think about that mother, power of one, and that decision. You know, and I'm sitting here thinking, we are in a moment. And then you think about what do we want to do with that and, and what each one of us gets to decide, no matter where you live, where I live. And if we're going to make some change, it's all doable. And again, I think it's not a question of if, it's the win. women across the globe A podcast about women's contribution to peace all over the world This is a production of podcastlab.ch in collaboration with a non-governmental organization Peace Women Across the Globe Peace Women
0: Across the Globe is on Spotify, iTunes and on the website 1000peacewomen.org Please do send us your feedback